I'd like to welcome all of you to the second lecture in the LSE Ideas series on Asia Rising. Tonight's topic is an American century or an Asian century. Um, before I introduce the two speakers, um, I want to deal with some administrative issues. Um, for those of you who are using Twitter, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSE Asia Rising. I also want to announce a couple of um, related events. The next lecture in this series is going to be on the 18th of March, and the topic is Will China Dominate the 21st Century? Um, and there's also going to be on the 27th of February a um, transatlantic conference hosted by the LSE SU USA um, Society. And finally, let's see if I can get this to work. Um, I want to remind everyone that we have a summer program with Peking University, and there are still places left for those of you who are interested. Right. Back to the topic. We have two speakers tonight. I want to convey apologies from Professor Westad, who came down with the flu and therefore is not available. Um, but we do have our key speaker, Professor John Eikenberry, who is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University in the Department of Politics and the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. And um, Professor Eikenberry is going to start, and he will then be followed um, by one discussant, Professor Michael Cox, who is the founding co-director of LSE Ideas and Emeritus Professor in International Relations at the LSE. Terrific. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And uh, I apologize in advance. I have a bit of a head cold. So if I squeak a little bit tonight, uh, I, I apologize. And I'll try to get, get to my ideas out there. It's a real pleasure to be on this panel, this distinguished panel. And uh, Professor Cox and I have uh, debated these big issues for many years. And it's great to once again uh, have a chance to talk about such a, a grand question. Uh, who will dominate the, the 21st century? Uh, and I have a feeling that we're going to talk about whether that whole idea of is it some who is who will dominate is the right question. Uh, is it really about uh, one state uh, succeeding another state? Is that the, the narrative that we should impose on what we see today? But we really are in a period of, of transition, of, of, of shift in center of gravity, the, what Paul Kennedy called the, 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 the weights and, uh, and, and uh, counterbalances of the international system are, are shifting. Uh, and we can see that really uh, even as we speak. Everyone, I think, agrees that the, 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 the nature and the character and the distribution of power is shifting. Uh, we have, in effect, a, a global power transition underway. Uh, unipolarity, which only a few years ago we, set, we, we said, uh, many of us, was the dominant, dominant feature of the international system, is giving way to a more diffuse distribution of power. Uh, uh, multipolarity is the term that many people use. States are rising and states are declining. But there's less agreement about whether this is truly a power transition in the classic mode, uh, uh, one state declining, another one rising to take its place. And there's a, there's a further debate about the consequences of power transition. What kind of world is, is awaiting us? Uh, 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 is, is it a, a world where, where we will have a, a, a grand struggle over the character of international order? The strong version, of course, and that is in many ways the place to start, is a narrative that 
that suggests that we do have these periodic moments in history, all the way back in the modern period, from one state uh, to the next, from Charles V and Louis XIV and Napoleon I and onward, these moments where states rise up and organize the system. This is the classic narrative of rise and decline. Paul Kennedy, uh, Robert Gilpin, E.H. Carr have all given us uh, these uh, eloquent statements about how the way the world works, the, the rise of states, they build orders, and those orders then decline, creating a contested and convulsed world order. Rising states, when they rise, want to create an international order that suits their interests. Uh, But when their their power fails them, other states step forward. So it's a structural model. A powerful state uh, organizes the international system, the United States in this case. Uh, Over time, it declines, uh, unable to meet its commitments to support the system. Uh, Other states rise up, and in the meantime, the rules and institutions become less legitimate. There's a governance crisis, a regime uh, uh, crisis. Uh, The system no longer looks like it's working and the leading state can't support it. And then finally, you have struggle. And you either have a clean new system emerging, in this case, China stepping forward to to take up the reins, uh, changing of the guard is now at its turn, or it becomes a spoiler and everything kind of breaks down. You don't have a, a new order, you simply have less order. The question I really want to ask tonight is whether this is, this is the way to look at the current system. Are we really in this kind of grand ordering transition? Is the U.S. losing its capacity, as, as, as many suggest it is, in a very rapid way? Its inability now to lead or shape the system? And what does China want? And what can China do? Uh, will it have capacities and opportunities like the U.S. has, like the West has had over all these centuries? Does China want to reorganize the system? Does it have different interests that lead to a different kind of international system or not? Uh, and what about those states in the middle, so to speak, rising states, other states? What do they want? How does China and the United States navigate in this larger world of states that are rising and declining? <clears throat> My view tonight is going to be very simple, that we are not witnessing a Kennedy-Gilpin global hegemonic transition. Yes, China is growing more powerful and will be able to project more influence and authority in its region and beyond, but it won't have the ideas the capacities, the friends, or historical opportunities, and I want to emphasize that, historical opportunities, to usher in a new system of rules and institution, ideas, capacities, friends, and opportunities. Indeed, what is most striking about the current transition is that China and other non-Western rising states are operating within, exploiting, taking advantage of, uh, in, a, in a good way, really, the international order that we have before us and the institutions uh, that have been crafted over the last uh, 60 or 65 years, the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO for sure. To put it differently, as China rises, it's becoming more of a stakeholder, in my view, uh, in the international order, or more broadly, the states that are rising together with China are creating a growing constituency for liberal internationalism, that is to say, for an international order that's relatively open and loosely rule-based. China will want to take power and use it for its own interests. But it's triggering more of what I would call an authority crisis over who sits at the table, who has votes. Uh, It's a reshuffling of the political hierarchy. It's not a grand 
struggle over the, the underlying substantive character of the system, over ideologies of modernity or even different models uh, of uh, international order. Now, there are several reasons why this is so. The first one is that when we have this the Gilpin-Kennedy narrative of rise and decline, we often um, don't talk about the order that that rising state uh, faces. And here, I would like to start by arguing that China faces a much more formidable, articulated, expansive, institutionalized, deeply rooted international order than any other rising state in world history. It's, it's, it's the fate, it's the luck of the draw that China's turn at rising is, is at a time in history where it's facing something that's very difficult to, to sur- surplant. Uh, it's an order I've described in some of my writings that's easy to join and hard to overturn. It's, it's durable uh, and it has various features. <coughs> I would say, number one, uh, it's a very integrative capable. That is to say, it's been an order that has added and absorbed many other countries over the decades. Look at Japan and Germany. <coughs> And wave after wave after, certainly after the Cold War, states joining in all the different uh, platforms and spaces and regional locations, Eastern Europe and in the EU and NATO. And then, of course, in East Asia, you have extraordinary story of (coughs) states rising up and integrating and playing a role. So integration, shared leadership. It's also a big tent in that it's not really an international order that is run by the United States anymore or even by the West. There are many other states that are part of the governing coalition. (coughs) Think about the G20 and think about the movement from the G6, G7 (coughs) to the G20. Thirdly, think about how states have profited within this order. It's an order where the spoils of modernity have been widely shared. States have been able to get rich. And finally, it's accommodated uh, many different kinds of development strategies. Of course, it's had this infatuation, if you will, with the neoliberal model, the laissez-faire model, but it's also accommodated in the early post-war period a more social democratic, what we call embedded liberal kind of order, where there's much more redistribution and, and welfare state support for openness. And then, of course, in Asia, you have what we call a state-led developmental strategy, all of them coexisting, if you will, in this order. And there's some evidence that uh, Deng Xiaoping in the, in the period when <coughs> he and his colleagues were contemplating a break with the past, they were looking at Japan, they were looking at South Korea and, and talking about how they could uh, 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 replicate and integrate into that kind of model in East Asia. Secondly, China and uh, other non-Western states uh, are looking for uh, an international order, I argue, in the, in the final analysis that is very much like the one that's there. Now, they don't have the authority that they want, but the underlying organizational principles are very congenial with their interests. Two things, most importantly, it's open. All of these states, China most importantly, uh, wouldn't be where they are today, rising up, if it weren't for an open system where they can trade. It, it's an extraordinary story, really, of foreign investment and uh, export-oriented assembly on the, on the Chinese coast, workers coming from the, the inside. It's a story of, of using the trade system to, to generate growth inside of China. And rules. This is very important. Uh, the multilateral rule-based system is something that China 
<coughs> needs, I think, because as it gets wealthier and as it has more international interests, it will have uh, incentives, as the Americans have had, to have a, a, a system where you know where, what everybody can do. It's an institutional system with rules where, where you're able to use those rules to advance your interests, to protect your equities. And so while we talk about that system, openness and rules, <coughs> as a liberal system, uh, we don't have to think of liberalism as a Western idea. It's really a set of mechanisms to protect your interests and to allow you to, to have your, your, your developmental system operate. So that's, I think, another reason why China will be moving into rather than out of and, uh, and opposing this system. Thirdly, China doesn't have a block of followers. Uh, we don't focus on this enough either. China is a powerful state. It's getting, uh, it's growing, although its growth is coming down. I'm sure we'll debate that. Is China coming back to normal, so to speak? But China is not leading a, a block. We, we talk about the block, the BRICS, but each of these countries has its own interests. They are, uh, yes, uh, outside of the system ex- to some extent, but not really. They are really inside the system. Russia and China on the Security Council. And they have different interests. Think of Brazil and China, which have a, 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 a real tension, I think, that's emerging over, over the fact that so much of the Brazilian economic growth model is being distorted by uh, export um, raw material exports to China and, and the debate inside of Brazil of a kind of de, de-industrialization caused by the, the Chinese uh, added assist, uh, p- uh, p- role in the system. So there's a, there's a critique there. It's not simply a, ham- a happy group of, of rising states. And the old states, like the, the Western states, Europe and the United States, and uh, countries like Brazil, there is as well, there is a, a connection there. When Obama was in Brazilia last year, he asked uh, uh, President Dilma, what is your agenda? And she said, so a, a little mouse in the room told me, um, uh, that uh, her agenda was infrastructure development, clean energy, education, and science, and and technology. And Obama said, that's my agenda as well. I mean, this is not Cold War, different worlds clashing. This is really uh, countries that are struggling to find the keys to the next phase of development, to address fiscal problems, inequality problems. Uh, we're in a world where uh, it's not so much power struggles and, and bold ideological visions of a new world. It's how do we take out the garbage? How do we get, make our trains run on time? How do we solve the, the problems of the overextended uh, uh, social contract? So it's, it's a more prosaic future, unfortunately, than the bold idea of a brand new Chinese-centered world order that we're all supposed to flock to. Fourthly, it seems to me that the, the focus on China misses the larger story of our age, and that is really the rise of a, of a larger cohort of states that are struggling but growing and gaining and looking for a role. And it's not just the BRICS, which we talk about a lot, but it's, it's this larger, what I'll call the, the middle class, not in, in economic terms, but in terms of a band of states that are not superpowers for sure, nor even regional hegemons, but they're not old developing states that are struggling. They're middle states. 
States. They're Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea for sure, which I'll come back to, Turkey, Australia, Canada. This is an extraordinary group uh, and many others like them that are, 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 have demographic shifts going their favor. They will have larger populations, share of GNP, even if they aren't going to have mega growth. And they're all seeking voice. They want a role at the table. They want a seat at the high table. They're, and they're pursuing stakeholder strategies, which is to say they're pushing for more multilateral cooperation. They're adding voices and constituencies. Remember what I was arguing earlier? The, there's a ro- growing constituency for liberal internationalism, for rule-based open order. They want that, and they, they're looking for ways to play that role, pushing for more cooperation. Think about Canada as a, as a truly middle state that's trying to, uh, to entrepreneurially push ideas onto the agenda, others as well, influencing world politics through agenda setting, bridge building, and coalition diplomacy. South Korea is, for me, the best case. I, I, I am utterly amazed by South Korea. It's a country that is shadowed by China, but in many ways is, is a superstar of how it's <coughs> made the economic transition, then the political transition the high-tech transition, uh, and then the transition that comes under this rubric of global Korea, which uh, the past President Lee uh, pursued, and uh, and Park as well, uh, of of looking for China, excuse me, for Korea to play a role beyond the regional issues, the old issues. Pyongyang, yes, that that isn't going to go away, but but South Korea has other things it can do. It's it's a host of the G20. It's hosted uh, Obama's pet project, which is this nuclear safety summit, which epitomizes his view about how we can make a, a new cooperation in an era when treaties and big, uh, heavy, lumbering institutions are not possible. And uh, Korea is the first <coughs> country that has uh, been the recipient of ODA to now be a benefactor. Uh, so it's moved across the divide. And it's trying to bridge the divide by uh, uh, hosting fora on development and clean energy and so forth. So this is really a story of integration and building. It's not a story of a wobbly order that China can topple over and, and walk in uh, 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 with arms akimbo and tell the world this is the new set of rules. Fifthly, there isn't, I'm sorry, but there isn't a Chinese model. That's an idea that's been been incubated in the West, and it it certainly allows for a lot of interesting books to be written, but there really isn't, in the profound sense, a Chinese model. There is an authoritarian capitalist way, but it, it, it doesn't make sense in so many different ways. It doesn't make sense as a global model because it really is premised on the fact that other countries will be liberal. Because if everybody does what China does, the system closes down. It's called protectionism. It's called bilateral statism. And the the, the system breaks down and nobody benefits. Um, It's more of a spoiler strategy, and it's a partial strategy, because China's really a a part-time spoiler. Because a lot of the other time that it's up and running, China is actually joining, integrating, and so forth. And I look forward to talking more about, about that part of the Chinese story later on. Uh, China, to add to this point about China, China is really, in my view, uh, 
it's it's obviously got lots of impulses, and in, in territorial issues, it's 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 a, a kind of an old style nineteenth century state that's trying to dominate, and and I think that's a, a, a self defeating uh, way to go. And I'll mention uh, why I think that in a moment. But uh, it is on the economic side, it's making shifts uh, it, t- away from the old ideological driven. Um, a, a vision of an alternative world order. For those of you old enough, you may remember in the 70s the the banner of the new international economic order. And and I must say, it had a lot of ideas. As as a college student, I thought, yes, you know, this is something where uh, sharing the wealth, redistributing world income. It was a kind of radical critique of capitalism on a global scale. And China in those years uh, gave voice to it. Uh, uh, but in more recent years, really beginning in 2007 and onward in government documents and party documents, you see China changing its, its tone about what it wants to change in the global economic system from that kind of new international economic order to something, the language is more in translation, uh, justice, uh, fairness, a uh, reasonable uh, international order. Those are, those are good terms. And they tend to mean when you get to the next level that China should have more voice. So it's not quite the, 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 the call for, for all the, the states that have been outside the order to be inside the order. It's not quite that generous, but it is a, a statement about how China should have more voice, which is my thesis. Authority, it's a struggle over authority. Um, uh, more voice in existing institution. If you have a wish list, if, if China's wish list economically, what would it be? It would be three things, I think. Number one, it would be uh, more uh, uh, more uh, voice uh, in uh, in the G20 process for sure, uh, and secondly, more voice voice and shareholder uh, votes, shall we say, in the IMF and the World Bank. So, getting its voting shares in these formal institutions equilibrated with it, with its underlying power more vo- as i said more voice in the in the international leadership fora and then thirdly in the longer term internationalization of the renminbi that's a game changer that's big and that will may well come and it will mean that 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 is the, that has been uh, the the secret i think of the american one of the secrets of the american role in the world that it's had the dollar as an international currency it, you don't have to be as disciplined you can export adjustment you can you can uh, you can run def- deficits without having currency crises and all the rest and china wants that uh, de gaulle you know exorbitant privilege it was seen as a as a hidden component by de gaulle in the 1960s and onward uh, but to get that, China is going to have to do a lot of things domestically that's going to have to make it even more of a status quo state, building a deepening business law, property rights, uh, uh, deepening financial markets, and so forth. So it's going to have to become more of a stakeholder if it wants to get to, to – it's going to have to build down to build up, if you will, if you get that image. Now, I mentioned this kind of world of democracies, the, the rise of the middle class. There's so many states uh, from in the, each hemisphere in Asia in Latin America, in uh, Europe, South and East, and, and, and a little bit in Africa, uh, are, are, are making these transitions have uh, perhaps a high point reached in, in, at the turn of the century. There's been a bit of a democratic recession in countries from Russia to Venezuela have come off of that. But you're left still with an extraordinary story of, of, of democratic states across the world. Uh, and uh, I want to just say that there are tangible implications uh, for, uh, of this fact for China. 
and for Russia, which would be the one power that it could tie itself to to have a kind of block that could change the system. Um, China and Russia are the only security rivals that the U.S. as the current leader have, but that rivalry exists in a world where the United States really uh, has more friends and partners and allies than uh, China does. And this is what I said earlier, that I don't see China building a coalition. And this is partly because so many of these other countries that are someplace in the system, not all of them tied directly to the United States or the West, uh, are, are, are liberal, democratic, and capitalist. Um, the U.S. and its allies, which are which is a term for countries where you formally have a military commitment to each other, that group of countries, the U.S. and all the others that it has a security commitment to, together generate 75% of world military spending, 75% just by those who are in the coalition. After the Cold War, at the moment the Cold War ended, so the Russia, uh, Soviet Union, Russia came down, and at that moment in the 90s, 90% of military spending took place in the world by democracies. Not all of them formally committed to security cooperation with the U.S. or, or NATO, but extraordinary number, 90%. It's come down, but only slowly it's now 85%. When you look at the world, this is one of the most benign security environments that the United States or Western Europe have, have ever faced. Uh, and China is in this, uh, in a kind of inferior position on the outside, really. The um, U.S. has six, around 60 uh, formal military partnerships. Uh, and there's an interesting graph I, I've seen recently of, of every five-year increments from 1945 to the present. In every five-year period from 45 to the present, there's been an uptick of, of these security partnerships. So even after the Cold War ended, everybody thought, certainly realists did, well, well, that's going to mean NATO will disappear and we'll go, go to a world where there aren't alliances. But it's, for some reason, they've continued to grow. After 9-11, a lot of these partnerships had to do with counterterrorism. But there's now as many as 60. Well, how many does China have? China has one. And it's called North Korea, which now has a leader which may be indicted for crimes against humanity. If I was Kim Jong-un, I'm not sure I, I, I'd, I'd lawyer up. Uh, and uh, Well, yeah, if there's any, any, any who, are, who are breathing, shall we say, in, in Pyongyang. But my point is that th this is an imbalance that you have to grapple with. Why is this? It's weird. And I, a British diplomat recently, I heard say, uh, China doesn't do alliances. And I, I think that's interesting. Why is that? But the U.S. does, and it has a double dividend. It has, first of all, a dividend of, of, of the U.S. power being tied to other countries and being used for what are seen as welcome Purposes, and at least in Asia, not necessarily in Latin America, but in Asia, Europe, and in various complex ways in the Middle East, with lots of changes and problems there. But the U.S. power tied is not just in, on in the Western Hemisphere like a spring ready to to jump. It's tied, and in that sense, tied down and more predictable. But the second dividend, of course, is that there's burden sharing, and so this is a kind of complex system, and. When we think, and this is really my final substantive point about this kind of world of democracies and, and, and China being in a kind of geopolitical box, there is this kind of counter-narrative out there 
that China and Russia and Iran represent a kind of revisionist states that are rising and, and, and going to challenge this Eurasian world uh, and uh, slowly uh, put an end to the post-war era. I think that's just wrong. I just it's it's goofy. Uh, China will want more. Authority and it will, if it can, try to dominate East Asia, and we see some of that politics emerging now. But there are limits to how you can do that. And I want to just make a Russia and China really think about how Russia is interacting with Ukraine and how China is interacting with Taiwan. Start with China. And, well, start with Russia and and Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, at least Western-oriented citizens and modernizing elites in Ukraine are looking for. Uh, a deeper connection with the EU, with the West. Their currents are, are flowing West. Uh, and it was really only Putin's strong-arm tactics that uh, prevented that from happening. And Robert Cooper, a uh, very distinguished uh, British diplomat who's been working for the EU and Javier Solana for many years, said that, well, Ukraine has made a decision to postpone its, its greater affiliation with the EU, but it's, the time will come. Uh, and there is a kind of sense that that 19th century bullying doesn't work like it used to because you have countries that are at least loosely democratic and don't like to be bullied. I mean, the U.S. has found this out the hard way, of course, as well. But it not is, it's not something that, that is going to allow for a kind of resurgent Russian empire uh, beyond anything that is uh, extant in Putin's, uh, uh, in Putin's head. Think about China and Taiwan. The, the Chinese sincerely believe that, that Taiwan is part of China. The problem is that the Taiwanese do not agree. In the late 80s, about 12% of Taiwanese identified in public opinion polls as being Taiwanese. Today, it's over 40, 56%, a clear majority. In a recent poll in Taiwan, uh, I forget the, the name of the company, uh, fully 80% of Taiwanese would opt for independence if they didn't think doing so would invite a Chinese invasion. And, that, and my point here is that Taiwan is a democracy. It's not the old KMT. And because of that, its heartfelt view about what it is, Taiwan, is given more legitimacy and depth and profundity. And it's going to be very difficult for China to use, again, like Putin, 19th century tactics to, to run rough, roughshod over Taiwan, let alone other countries in East Asia. So I'm trying to argue that, that there is a kind of, uh, there's kind of a, a final kind of point uh, w- uh, beyond which China is going to have a very difficult uh, time using its power to operate outside of the system we've been describing. To conclude... Uh, This picture of the global power transition is not best seen as a narrative of U.S. decline. It is, if anything, a crisis of success. That is to say, capitalism, democracy, and social development mobilization uh, have overrun the foundations of governance. But that's a problem you want, and certainly a problem you would expect if you create an open system with loose rules and kind of let it run. It's going to do those kind of things. And secondly and finally, this is not a world that will be friendly to Chinese revisionist struggles. China seems to know that. It does not have a grand vision of an alternative world system. For China, international relations is more about the search for commerce and resources, the protection of its sovereignty, and where possible regional domination. 
it can inflict damage on the international system as it exists today, but it does not have a vision or capability or the friends or an agenda of economic and political betterment to make good on any ambition it might have to, to see a wholesale transition of the system and usher in a Chinese era. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, John. Uh, I'm, I was described at the beginning there as the discussant. I have only five words to say I agree with John. Um, and then I'll add a ride to that perhaps too much. But there are some disagreements, and I hope they come out from, from, from you. John's focus also, if you notice, has been very much on China. I'm going to say a little bit more about Asia. Uh, and also going to say, use, uh, entertain the, the whole question of what we mean by American century and indeed uh, an Asia century. And I'm going to end up by asking the question that if it's not an American century and if it's not going to be an Asian century, then whose century is it going to be? And if it's going to be nobody's century, then I wonder where we are heading. With those little uh, throat-clearing exercises, let me start with a little philosophical digression. It'll be the first and last I do this evening, don't worry. Uh, Our lives, as you know, are organized in terms of time smaller and larger chunks of it. Thus we have seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, and months. Uh, We organize our thoughts in terms of time too. Historians, uh, whom I love, uh, do it all the time. But usually they like to think in terms of either key turning point years, 1914, uh, 1945, uh, 1989, the end of the Cold War, 2001, or even whole decades Hence, in the West, when we think of international history between the two wars, we tend to think in terms of the two decades of crisis. The 1940s decade is, of course, the war and its aftermath leading to the Cold War. Then there's the 1950s, in which I grew up, rather boring, that rather grey post-war decade of recovery. That was then followed by the far more interesting 1960s, the decade of revolt, sex if you could get it, drugs if you could buy them, and rock and roll if you liked it. We then move on to the 1970s, what I characterise as the nothing long decade, coming just before the 1980s, the end of the Cold War decade. We then move quickly on to the 1990s, now seen as the decade of illusion, when we are now told history went on holiday. Finally, we have the noughties, 2001 to 2010, what has been called sometimes the decade from hell, at least from the point of view of the United States and the West, in which the world was turned against the United States, particularly G.W. Bush, and even against finance capitalism in 2008. But for the truly ambitious, for those higher up the intellectual food chain, like John and I, (laughs) what I like to call the uber-thinkers, these little bits of time, years and decades, are mere data points insignificant steps along the long historical road that took us from the beginning of the First World War through World War II to the Cold War to the end of the Cold War and forward into this millennium. For these true masters of the universe, only one chunk of time really matters, centuries. Indeed, some would divide up the past hundred years or more into centuries of a rather special metaphorical character. Three centuries, actually, to be precise, in one. 
a European century, which to all intents and purposes came to an end by the time the guns fell silent in 1918. Then, announced by an American publisher, Henry Luce, in February 1949, the beginning of, or at least the announcement of the possibility of, an American century, which was then went on to be fulfilled. And third and finally, what many are now calling and referring to around the world, and certainly in Asia as well, a new Asian century, which many think we are just about entering. Now, whether you want to call these power transitions or power chips, I shall leave up to the discussion. John raised that question, and we can come back to that in the Q&A. Now, if we are the uber-thinkers, if we do think in terms of these metaphorical centuries, these concepts of metaphorical time, uh, it does then lead inevitably, and not surprisingly given the title of the discussion for tonight, into trying to ask and answer the question as to whether or not something referred to as the American century, as defined originally by Lewis and others there afterwards, is coming to an end. Now, what do we mean by the American century? I think John has given a pretty good idea of that. It's not just about power, the military power. It's about a period in which the United States defined the international agenda, helped lead the West, and wrote most of the rules of the game. And it is that which lasted more or less intact, it is argued, although there's some discussion about that, from the, from the 1940s through until some time uh, much later. But when later? Well, now later. Now later, that's what people are saying. Is this indeed, therefore, giving way to what people are now calling an Asian century? America can no longer lead, it is argued by many. No longer has the capacity to write the rules of the game. In other words, according to some, is in decline. And the world, in turn, is turning on its axis and shifting away from the West, away from the United States, towards China as a specific state, but actually more regionally towards Asia as a particular dynamic region. I would argue that this notion of a, of a shift, if not a specific power shift, as John has defined it, I think this notion of a shift, a great transition, is now becoming amongst many writers, many thinkers, many publicists, almost common sense in terms of thinking about the world. Well, whether you want to call it the rise of the rest or the rise of the bricks, nonetheless, it, it captures, I think, a sense, the, the, the zeitgeist of the period in which we are now in, a period of transition, whether it is a power transition is a larger question. Certainly my good friend Paul Kennedy seems to think so, and has um, repeated that point over the last few years. Fareed Sakaria, of course, always likes to avoid the word decline, particularly when talking about the United States, uh, but still thinks we are moving into a post-American world, even if it's not American decline, although if you can spot the difference between those two things, you're a better man than I, Gung Din. And, of course, dear Kishori Mabubani seems to be in no doubt at all the Asian century has already begun. Now, we have two questions before us. Is the American century over as defined? And is the Asian century beginning, or has it already begun? Now, my answer to the two questions taken together is not quite so simple as it might sound. I was going to use the English way out of this and say on the one hand, uh, but on the other. Uh, I have another answer which is not yet, uh, and probably never, but I thought that was rather too complete. 
So I'll leave it open with a deep scepticism as to whether or not I do think there is such an ending of one century and the beginning of another, and I'll come on to say why. To be specific, I think in spite of its many problems, its many travails, its uh, many difficulties, many challenges it faces both at home and abroad, I think it is still premature to talk of the United States today as being on the cusp of something akin to the situation faced, say, by the British Empire after World War II. There's still lots of life left in the American Empire, and those who understate that, I think, do so at their peril. China may have done so, by the way, John. Furthermore, though, I think there's a good deal of evidence to suggest that Asia will become more important economically in the future, I think one should be beware talking as if a new Asian century is on the cards. What are my reasons for arguing thus? Well, the first thing you do if you are an historian, and although I'm not in the history department, I sometimes think I should be, although I don't suppose they'd ever give me a job. My first reason for thinking so, I suppose, is learning from the past, what people have said before. It's quite a good thing to do, to go back to what people have said over the years about both these issues, either America being in decline on the one hand or the Asian century being upon us on the other. We've been here before. In fact, U.S. decline has been touted before, indeed, by me, at certain points in my rather peculiar career. U.S. decline, and there you are, John, very honest chap, aren't I? U.S. decline has been touted before. In fact, the first year in which U.S. decline was announced it was 1968. You can imagine why. The year of revolt, America was in Vietnam, the deficits were rising. Two or three years later, Bretton Woods was about to collapse, you didn't know that. The Soviet Union was on the rise then, and China was a threat. Um, throughout the 1970s, John and I engaged in long debates about the end of American hegemony. Uh, Ronald Reagan came in to reverse that, we were told. But guess what? In the end, this whole debate about American decline, which Paul Kennedy, of course, gave a strong expression to in his great book, actually, in many ways, still a great book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, published in 1987. It turned out to be the dog that did not bark. And we got into the 1990s. We weren't talking about this at all. We were talking about the opposite. We were talking about the new unipolar moment, why America was the new Rome on the Potomac. In other words, we've got to be a bit careful. We've been here before. America has declined nearly every year since 1968. <laughs> so I suppose I conclude that we may have to be a bit concerned, therefore, if it's doing it again. In the front page of Foreign Policy magazine, I, I noticed recently, I think... So somebody in the audience may know about this. The front page of the magazine said, American decline, hyphen, this time it's real. <laughs> Question is it? The other thing about the Asian century, worth thinking about. Uh, I would never call myself an Asian specialist, so I'm obviously going to say a few words about it tonight, unless on China, more on Asia, by the way. Um, if you actually go back to debates about Asia in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, actually the term Asian century is used quite a lot then, through, through the late 1980s and into, through large parts of the 1990s. There's quite a large literature proclaiming then uh, a coming Asian century. Then something seriously went wrong. <laughs> Japan collapsed financially. And the Asian economic crisis of 1997 and 1998 came along. So I suppose the first thing we want to do is kind of learn a little bit, a little bit, maybe a little bit of modesty 
little bit of concern that if we draw any lessons from history, and I know we never do, but if we learn anything before, we've been here before in this discussion, and maybe that should give us some warning signs as to proclaiming either one or the other too confidently today. That would be my first most general point. The second point I'd like to make, and in, in a way it follows on from many of the, uh, the points that John and I, uh, that John uh, discussed so eloquently in his own presentation, um, and it follows from my own observations so far about American decline. The United States as a single unified state and a single united economy still possesses what dear old Susan Strange at this university talked about in, in great, with great eloquence again, enormous structural advantage, structural power she called it which the declinists, as I would like to call them, have always underestimated. And in spite of all America's problems, and again, I don't underestimate any of them, and there are many, these advantages have not gone away. Amongst the many, I would include what John has already mentioned, America's military power, what John also stressed so correctly, its alliance system, its overall global reach, the central role played by the dollar, as the world's primary reserve currency, and the still enormous influence exercised by the U.S. economy and U.S. institutions, including the Federal Reserve, on the wider world economy. Indeed, just to make some point here about the Federal Reserve, when the Federal Reserve talks about tapering, <coughs> when it's not referring to trousers, it's referring to the dollar, as you know, it's referring to the notion that it may actually stop printing dollars in their billions. What actually happened to the rest of the world economy last May when Bernanke even hinted at the possibility, an American hinted at the possibility of tapering. The emerging economies went into a steep dive. It does actually suggest that what is said in Washington, particularly by the head of the Fed, can make an enormous difference. Moreover, in spite of the very best efforts of George W. Bush, the United States also continues to exercise a great deal of soft power too. <laughs> and we might also add that unlike previous empires, there's something rather odd about the American system of American imperial power. With a very few obvious exceptions, quite a few people continue to demand it. Especially, by the way, in Asia. Especially in Asia, it would seem, where current fears real or imagined, about the rise of China has led the U.S. to tilt to Asia. Finally, I'd make the point, and again, John hinted at this, and it's not often made enough in the current discussion with all of its senses of transition and crisis, that during the heyday of the so-called or the real American century, that period that opened up in 41 and continued there afterwards, that during the heyday of the American century, the United States actually faced many more challenges, really, than it does today. Not only from the Soviet Union, which, whose threat was real, by the way, it wasn't imagined, and also from China as radical states, but also from powerful counter-ideologies such as Marxism and an organized international communist movement. And that was real. And that was real. Now the situation, and I, I don't dispute and, and, and dismiss some of the security threats to the world today, including terrorism, proliferation, and all the rest of it, but now the situation, at least at one level, looks altogether more secure. 
The current pessimism about the world, it seems to me, simply ignores this. The USSR is no more. It no longer organizes revolutionary parties and national liberation movements around the world. It no longer funds various forms of oppositional radical groups or radical regimes around the world any longer. That is a crucial and was and remains a crucial turning point in the history of international relations. And China has risen, as John has pointed out so well, not by rejecting globalization and global markets, but by embracing them. And by the way, very few people, including academics at the LSE today, think there is much alternative to the market in one form or another. To this extent, the United States has won. Then think of Asia's contradictions. Let me be clear. Since the Asia crisis of the late 1990s, Asia's recovery has been real and its overall weight in the world economy has grown. In the process, millions more people have joined the middle class and even more millions have been taken out of poverty. Moreover, if economists are to be believed, and I'm not so sure they should be, but moreover, if economists are to be believed, Asia's future looks distinctly bright. All this I take as a given. But before we start proclaiming an irreversible power shift and uh, the emergence of a new Asian century, we should take some care. John I think hinted at some of these issues, and I'll just elaborate on a few of them. Firstly, a large part of what I think is the Asian miracle over the last 10 years has in part, or maybe in large part, been dependent on China, whose growth in the future is likely to fall over time, and whose rise over the past decade has generated a host of new tensions in the Asia region. Now, China will, of course, say it doesn't threaten anybody. It continues with the peaceful rise. The only trouble is that most of its neighbors just don't believe it. So the heart of the Asian century, or the heart of the Asian growth model, has been dependent on a power, and a state, and an economy whose future at least looks potentially uncertain, although I'm not saying it's catastrophic, and whose rise had over the last, far from integrating people into a security system, has made other states in the, in the region feel deeply insecure. That is not the beginning of a new century of leadership. Secondly, there is, to be blunt, only a very limited sense of collective identity in Asia. <coughs> Nationalism rules okay. Old historical hatreds persist from World War II and indeed even from the Cold War. The Vietnamese do remember the Chinese invasion of the late 1970s. And there are very few organizations binding the region together as a collective unit. There is no NATO. There is no European Union. There is ASEAN. It does its best. It's been there since 67, and I you know, would applaud all the things it has achieved and many of the things it ought to achieve more. And it has evolved, and it may evolve over time. I'm not dismissing it, as some people have done. But it is not a collective organisation. This fundamental principle still remains the principle of non-interference into the internal affairs of other states. That's how it has to be in Asia. You can't have a European Union plonked on Asia. It just won't work. ASEAN is the best you're going to get. But that still reflects the very contradictions and divisions and 
fissures within Asia, a series of post-colonial states with very powerful senses of their own identities. And there's also, in spite of these many economic achievements, which are real, there are massive potential fissures remaining in the region between democratic states and non-democratic states, between North Korea and nearly everybody else, uh, between China and Vietnam, potentially between China and India, and of course between Japan and China. Now, I don't agree with the idea, now popular, that Asia is in a 1914 moment. But it tells us something when normally very sober analysts whom I respect, like Gideon Rackman and Margaret Macmillan, the historian of the First World War, think that we might be. The very fact of even raising that question, it seems to me, by people who I respect enormously, at least tells us something about the real, in general, real deep <coughs> problems that still exist and remain unresolved in terms of state-to-state -state relations in the whole of the Asia region. Moreover, a number of states within Asia remain deeply settled internally. We see it every night on our TV screens in the capital of one of the more prosperous and more successful states within Asia, namely Thailand. Where does this all leave us? And I'll make some very quick concluding points then in answer to the question of an American or an Asian century. As I pointed out, I'm rather sceptical about the notion of centuries possibly in general. They're problematic concepts anyway. How you get one century, you know, three centuries in one century, of course, is mathematically impossible. But let me just end on three, three observations and then open it up for Q&A. I don't think we are in this simple transition, as John, I think, has pointed out. I, I, I don't like the notion of a sense of an American century, but I certainly have deep scepticism that we're at the beginning of something which many have called a new Asian century. If we took away the word Asia and substituted it with China, as John has done, really, would that work? And again, I don't want to repeat what John has already said. Will it be a Chinese century? Here again, I am highly sceptical. I mean, I don't not only agree with John, as I do all the time, I agree with most other writers on this particular subject, with one exception, Martin Jakes, my very good friend here for many years. David Shambaugh, I think, has summarized it pretty well in his recent book on China. You know, it's a partial power. I just don't see it performing that leadership role. It may challenge America. It may, may want to, as John has said, a bigger seat at the table. It may be more of a threat to the United States and the region, I think, than John suggested. We can go into that. But nonetheless, I just don't see it performing this leadership role. Certainly not at the moment and not in its current political form. Which leads me then to the question, and this will be my last concluding point, if the American century is fading, as some suggest, although I'm rather sceptical about that in, in, the simple, in a simple way, and if there is uh, no Asian century rising, and I'm highly sceptical about the notion the BRICS are going to take over the world, God help us. <laughs> Goldman Sachs might. <laughs> Jim O'Neill tried to, but I don't think the BRICS will do it, and I'm not so sure about the mints either. Well, we may be moving into a century that might be nobody's. As our good friend Charlie Cupchon has put it. Which world are we moving into? His answer, no one's. 
It won't be anybody's world. Nobody will lead. Nobody will direct. Nobody will shape the rules of the game, although John, I think, has some doubts about that. If that is the case, it is possible, if the world is going to be no one's, then actually, I, for one, would be fairly worried about that sort of world. And by the way, I think you should be too. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Right, um, let's open up for questions and comments, and I would like to take them in groups of three and then allow the two speakers to address any of the three questions. If you have one specific, please do state who it's to. I'm going to have to put the glasses on so I can actually see people properly. Okay, I'll take one question from the first row. So I'll start here. You want to get those guys moving around with those mics? Yes, Does it work? Well. yeah. Hello, my name is Nicholas Shira. I'm a PhD student at the Hertie School of Governance and currently at a research day here at LSE Ideas. Um, you both pointed out your skepticism towards the decline, uh, the Western decline, and I just wanted to ask you why, why, why is then this talk of decline, if we conceive it as a discourse, to whom, um, what function does it serve? To whom is it beneficial? Okay, another question. You, there's a gentleman right over there near the wall at the top. Yep. I don't know who that is. Thank you very much indeed. Um, my question is for both speakers, although uh, particularly um, Professor Eikenberry. Um, how well do you think... Europe and the, the European Union, but also the member states, um, can play a part alongside America. I, I just want to inject a note of some scepticism into the professor's comment about um, Robert Cooper suggesting, which maybe I'm paraphrasing, that uh, Ukraine's future was inevitably in the West and it would be able to resist Putinism. Um, I've worked in Ukraine for many years and I was frankly quite shocked when in a conversation with a, a European Commission political advisor in a neighboring country to note that he wasn't aware that during the Second World War Kiev had been under German occupation And I find that, generally speaking, many Eurocrats and the ethos of the European Union, and to a certain extent some member states, really uh, doesn't get geopolitics. They're not comfortable with it. Their real um, experience and wish is in social policy and... Uh, humanitarian issues. Okay, third question right here in the front. Thanks very much. Um, uh, Guy de Jonquière, ESIPE. I have a question sort of builds on Mick Cox's last point, but it's really for Professor Eikenberry. Um, I take your point. China has obviously embraced economic integration, but I wonder if you aren't really being much too optimistic about global institutional I integration. You mentioned a number of organizations um, Uh, G20, IMF, World Bank, um, uh, EU, um, climate change. 
It's very hard to think of any international organization that's not actually in the process of disintegration at the moment. People are already widely saying, what's the point of the G20? And the latest meeting seems to bear out that question. Within the EU, we're seeing the rise of parties that are dedicated to either withdrawal from the EU or or non-cooperation with the EU. Is it actually possible... I mean, the system we inherited after the war that was built after the war was built by a hegemon, and it worked because of a hegemon. Is it possible to conceive of anything like that, a rules-based multilateral system that does not have a hegemon behind it? And in that case, uh, are we not actually in a far bigger transition than the one that you, you posited? Yeah, John, let's get started on those, and I'll yeah. start with there. I, I think that... that uh, Indeed, uh, global institutions are troubled, and uh, I'm not sure decay is is the right word, but but clearly not performing in a very strong way. I I think the WTO is a success story, the most legal-oriented international institution we have, and and despite the failure of the Doha round, we do have a a kind of... sociological process of the WTO being put at the center, really, of, 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 of trade disputes. Uh, it's, it's doing a lot of work in U.S.-China relations, for example. Powerful states do abide by it. It, it, it actually has some functionality. Um, there's a book on my desk now. It's coming out in the, in the summer uh, called uh, uh, The System Worked that looks at how the international financial system coped with the 2008 crisis and argues that actually it's, it's trying to be counter your argument that actually it, it muddled through quite well and that there has been some tightening of regulations and bankers and so forth in that kind of more tight, tightly drawn world have, have uh, adapted and... Um, crises were were uh, the worst at least were averted um, I do think to kind of make the, the pivot the other direction that that when I made my comments about China that that one could imagine a time when and if these global institutions aren't performing any better than they are now, if there isn't a, a, a kind of renaissance at some level, a problem solving. I, I do think that international orders have to solve problems that, that countries in them care about. And if they stop solving problems, they lose their legitimacy. And uh, one could imagine a, in a future decade, if, if this kind of liberal order uh, decays because U.S. hegemony isn't providing support or if it's just not able to solve problems in this much more scale and scope world of, of, of climate change and, and, uh, and cascading interdependence, then there is an opportunity for another state to step forward. It, it's kind of a crisis moment. Uh, so, uh, again, I would say that that is something I would, I would watch very carefully. Um, although I, I, I do think that... Uh, uh, there, these kind of informal networked governance systems are are performing better than you know it's sort of like you know what uh, Mark Twain said about Wagner's music it's better than it sounds you know I think it's actually doing more work than <laughs> <laughs> I like that I um, that's good. Yeah. That's uh, 
but but general decay of institutions and some kind of really dramatic shift, such as a Japan flipping towards China, if there would be an internal coalition. You could imagine this kind of. We've been painting a picture of steady as you go, incremental stakeholder. I do think discontinuities. We we haven't paid enough attention to them, and those would be some where you background de- sort of a degradation of the institutions and the cooperation. I think that the final point there about what your last point was really about about do you really need hegemony to make multilateralism work? And I think we we, we it, it does work better, especially if it's, if, if it's a liberal hegem- uh, hegemon that really right. b- believes in them and has self-interested reasons. So that actually leads me to think that in the decades ahead, at least for a few more decades, there's actually going to be some interest in the U.S. continuing to kind of slog through and doing these things because you don't see other states stepping forward providing public goods. As I mentioned, China cares about promoting commerce, acquiring resources, protecting sovereignty, and where possible uh, sort of aggrandizing itself regionally. And that's not a story of, of, of um, new frameworks for international cooperation or even visions of them. So who is doing that? No one is really playing that role uh, that uh, we so, sort of take for granted somebody will be doing. And, and so there may be a kind of subsidization. The U.S. may not really want to do as much of this. It certainly doesn't look like it's very interested in global leadership today very much. Uh, but there may be more external support for it than there is internal American support for it. And that would be a really weird future. Um, on the EU, I, I'm, I mean, I think we, I, I, we've been maybe selling China uh, a little bit high today. We've been selling, maybe selling the EU short. I mean, the, the EU, uh, leave aside the monetary system, the, the, the kind of accomplishment is an extraordinary one. That's what I think Robert Cooper would say, that it's, it, it, is, it is an institution that uh, enshrines and celebrates and shows the, the functionality of the, of the rule of law. And uh, the uh, the EU doesn't have an NSA. I mean, it is a it is in that sense it, it is a a more benign kind of international configuration. And um, there's actually and so I think it it's, it has played this role of of. of solving problems by absorbing problems on its periphery. Uh, I think it's unclear what will happen with Ukraine, but it's interesting to note that when the Ukraine leaders approached China about uh, investment in Ukraine, it's reported uh, that the Chinese said, we're more likely to invest in Ukraine if you integrate more closely with the EU. Isn't that interesting? Um, and, And then on this question of decline, uh, I, you know, I think there is a. It, we, I, I'm not really that crazy about calling the current system an empire, but I understand why people use that term. It's very evocative, and it gets at the structural hierarchical mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. But, but that's the, when we talk about empires across time. That's the evocative narrative. De- decline is. Is, is, is the it, it's the stuff of great literature, social theory, uh, paintings, uh, decay. It's it's a, it has this kind of uh, uh, it synchronizes with the, 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 the an individual's life cycle, uh, the arc of your life. So I, I think it's it's sorry about that, Mick. Uh, okay. uh, <laughs> I got years to go yet. Don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. You've got many more bottles yeah, of wine yeah, to. Uh, absolutely. Don't worry. Don't worry. 
Um, but I do think that 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 that, that is you know from from. You know, the Rome, yeah. you know, Rome onward, um, but it's always in that same sense. It then leads you to say, you know, is this, you know, is this a moment in this current cycle of rise and decline? I, I think a hundred years from now, nobody thinks it's going to be an America. I mean, I, I do think a hundred years, whatever it is, there will be a moment when it will be very different. It won't be, it won't be anything called an American century. So we, we at some point we will leave it, and we will. There will be more people speaking. A different language, using a different currency, and uh, it's just demographics and time. Hmm. So, uh, so in that sense, there, you know, the, the people who are who are pro- uh, prophesizing decline, if they keep doing it, they will eventually get it right. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's what that's um, that's my that's my that's my but, let out clause. There. Yeah, but I, I, I guess I, I yeah. how would you? Well, let me just take up t- points quickly, so I want more people to come in. I think the, the I pick up on Guy's point over here about institutions. Uh, I mean, I think the United States still still possesses an enormous amount of formidable power in structural terms. That was my point. But it's, it's become hopeless at leadership. And I think leadership matters. Uh, I think credibility matters. I didn't want to see the United States get involved in Syria. But the very fact that it didn't get involved in Syria and the way it didn't get involved in Syria undermined its credibility in other parts of the world. And I think the other point I'd make here, and again, it's not to bash the United States, which I don't ever feel very comfortable with. I'll bash Bush. But I, I, feel a, I feel a bit easier about, uh, a little, okay. little less easier about the United States. But I, I think the United States itself also has some, a deep ambivalence about international institutions. I mean, it, it's had it since it rejected, the Senate rejected the League of Nations back in 1920. Uh, I mean, and it wasn't just the Bush problem, it's an American problem. It ran even through the 1990s. The, the Chinese have, have ratified the law of the sea treaty, the United States has not. It, it, exactly. So I think there is an issue here which is not about American power. It is, it is about leadership credibility and an ambivalence about institutions per se. Um, and I think that is the crisis of institutions, because I, I do take the rather realist view that while we need liberal institutions, of which many of which, are, if we don't have them, the system doesn't work, but if we don't have the leadership within, the, within those institutions, it won't work either. And the fact of the matter is the derogation of leadership, it seems to me, it's easy to say but difficult to repair. The absence of leadership by the United States in, in, over the last few years, and very poor leadership at different times, I think is, is at the heart of the crisis we're thinking. It's not a crisis of power, it's a crisis of leadership. And I don't think, I don't think, I'm, I don't think Obama's done any, anything to repair that, to be perfectly blunt, even though I support many of his own policies. On the decline question, well, I, this is a great question, by the way. I think intellectuals love talking about decline. Uh, I don't, it, it may be a kind of sociology of intellectuals. I mean, is, I mean, it's so boring talking about countries rising, but it's so much more interesting talking about decline. We've got so many declining empires over history. I mean, everyone has done it. And which, of course, may be one of the reasons why we want to talk about it now, because every other empire in history has done one thing, decline. Now, it may have done it politely like the British. Um, it may have done it rather, you know, rudely like the French. It may have done it rather badly like the Soviets. Um, and I think there is, therefore, the power of historical analogy, historical thinking. You know, if you like, the shadow of Edward Gibbon, in a sense, hangs over all of us. And I therefore think we think that, therefore, if everybody else has done it, why don't these damned yanks do it too? <laughs> Sorry, John, not you, personally. Um, so I think there is the power of analogy. And I, but also, I'd say, beware historians bearing false historical analogies. 
because in a sense I think this is actually an analogy that doesn't work quite so simply but that's one of the reasons we engage in it quite a lot there are some also some basic facts on the ground you've got to look at you know the decline of trade the rise of other power centres these are not in so there are some real facts on the ground which lead people to conclude that but I do think there's a wider kind of narrative here the, the, the narrative of decline itself on the EU well I won't say too, too much about that all I will say is that if you go back in this literature of centuries John if you go back to the year 2000 2001 I've got four books on my shelf saying the 21st century will be European I've got four I may even have more in other words there was a moment in time when the EU was paraded or given, given the, the, the premier position uh, of leading the world including again our friend Charlie Cupchard of course <laughs> who, who we can attack viciously tonight because he's, he's not here um, so yeah all, all those things taken together let's, let's open up to our question yeah, another sure. three questions sure, sure. there's a gentleman over there um, was waving a green piece of paper earlier can you please stand up yes um, then we'll have there's a gentleman right there in the grey sweater Okay, right. Thank you. We talked of nobody's century. Where are you? I'm done. Yep, I see you. Where are you? Third okay. one I need from over there. Lady in the middle with the red hair. The nobody's century can also be called everybody's century. Sorry? The nobody's century can be called everybody's century. Okay. And uh, uh, why is it so difficult for us to imagine a more liberal world order? We are, after all, we are globalizing, and uh, uh, increasingly so in, in all directions, in, in, in trade and commerce, uh, in every way we are globalizing, we are migrating, uh, and so we are intensely globalizing, so why it is it so difficult to imagine a world which is where either nobody or everybody is, is, is kind of what you call, uh, claims, to be, claims to be a century? So, but after all, in, at a national level, we had, at one time we thought monarchy, if a monarchy goes, all system will break down. So can't, why can't we imagine that at, at the international level, level a, a democratic structure? Thank you. Thank you. It seems to me this is the wrong question to ask. The American leadership and the preponderance of power came about as a result of particular circumstances after the Second World War. And to expect that the new century, there will be similar replacement by somebody else, I think it's conceptually wrong and empirically it's not likely to be borne out. So the question is, the American power is preponderant, yes. But the limitations of American military power are also becoming visible. Look at the last 10 years in Iraq, in Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. This shows that that preponderance is not being able to make itself felt in influencing world affairs. So looking at Professor Cox's thing is nobody century. Let's ask ourselves, how will that limitations of military power on the one hand and multipolarity, multidimensionality of power. There is economic power, social power. And let's not fool ourselves that the Western liberal international system is likely to prevail for all time to come because the other powers are emerging and they have different ideas to organize societies. So therefore, keeping all that in mind, let's see how this, this century will progress. So I'll expect the two speakers to comment on that. Thank you. Thanks. 
last round. Thank you. Um, my question um, is about the stability of the infrastructure, so-called, um, the structure right now is so strong, so we are not going to enter uh, an age that Asia or China will take over easily. But I'm wondering about two factors. One is um, inequality that will is seriously undermine this structure. We'll see, I don't know, somewhere um, a number like, Less than 100 people now is owning half of the world's uh, wealth. And then I, I'm just wondering, the, the Occupy movement has died down, but we see Arab Spring or a lot of uh, unrest. Um, it's based on this questions like uh, who's owning the world. And when we enter a new century, we have to ask this question. Another factor is we are seeing now that the U.S. is buried in, a, in snow and storm. And we are seeing uh, climate change, I think, well, and the sustainability, I, I think, how we will develop and we develop and we consume. And the current structure is currently not going to last forever. And the energy is a problem. And I don't know which country taking over can solve this global problem of inequality and um, um, environment. I'm just wondering, either one of you will address that. Thank you. Okay. Why don't I... I'll just try and deal with each of those points in turn. I raised that question at the very end, sir, about uh, it, it, maybe we should stop thinking of anybody having the century and maybe it'll be nobody's century, no, no one's world. That was the topic. And a number of others have, have written in that vein. Because if they think the United States, in a sense, is in a long-term period of erosion, whether you want to call it decline, even John at the end said, I don't like the word decline, but said in 100 years' time, I don't think the United States would be in the position it is in today, which in a sense is an implication that it's, it's not going to be exercising the same degree of power and authority, rules and, rules and leadership that it, that it is at the moment or was 20, 20, 25 years ago. And in turn, that nobody's going to take this over. Uh, we've already argued that maybe Asia can't for all sorts of reasons I've suggested. China might not want to uh, for all sorts of reasons. One is who, who the hell wants this horrible job anyway? Um, and do we have the institutions and the ideology to do it? And I think for the time being, we have to say the European Union, for the time being, I, I make that point clear, can't do it. So it is reasonable to ask the question, therefore, we're moving into a no, not, a, not a no-power world, but a world in which there's no one single dominant power or one single dominant coalition of powers, a, 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 a no-power world, if you like, no leadership. And the question quite genuinely and reasonably asked, it seems to me, well, does it really matter? It, it, you know, it becomes the, the, the genuine people century, if you like, the, the century without hierarchy, uh, the century without any superpower, uh, either shaping the rules of the game or screwing things up. Um, why not take a kind of a wider uh, equitable approach to international relations? Does it really matter if we move into a five-power world, you know, back into a multipolar world, the kind of world, by the way, that brought us World War I and World War II, by the way, just in case you forget that. And I suppose that is part of the historical problem, that... It's not because I love great powers per se, no doubt being British with some kind of weird kind of attachment to this psychologically. It is that overall, certainly over the last few years, I suppose, I, I, don't, I can't perceive an order without leadership. Um, and, and I'd be even blunter than that. You know, for all of its faults, limits, difficulties, internal contradictions... Uh, inability to know where other countries in the world are, 
the United States hasn't done a bad job at it. I think it's done some pretty stupid and awful things at a certain time. But if I had to choose a hegemon, I broadly speaking choose the United States of America to be it. Okay. Now the question is, if it's no longer going to be it, then what else is left? You see, and I, and I think it's a genuine question you've got to ask. Unless you're so you know, vis- viscerally hostile to the United States and its values and its belief systems, which you may want to be, that's fine by me. But then you're left with, well, who doesn't? If nobody does it, then how do these institutions work? You know? Who writes the, who enforces the rules? Who pays for the security of Europe, by the way, who certainly don't want to pay for their own security at the moment? <laughs> Let's be blunt about it. NATO is now a more unequal alliance than it was 20 years ago. Um, why does Asia demand American security? You know, this does kind of raise the question about the American role in the world. If we didn't have, we might even have to invent the damn thing. And, and that, I suppose, is part of the problem. I think it's something that I, I kind of come at, not as an uncritical apologist for the United States, but trying to think of a decent international, a decent international order. And that's why I come back to your very, very good question, is that if there's no... If, it, it may be more equitable, and I, I accept that. I accept that. A multipolar world may be more equitable in terms of the distribution of power, but historically, when you get that multidistributional of power, what we call a multipolar order, to use the kind of IR terminology, it has not often ended up with benign international outcomes. That is the only thing I'd simply ask you to think about. You would have scrambles for power, more, more balancing of power, uh, more alliance systems trying to balance other powers, and in part, part of the cause of the First World War was precisely that kind of system. Now, it could well be that globalization will solve it all. We'll all become so integrated economically it won't matter. We'll all become so democratic that we won't want to go to war with one another on the grounds that the democratic peace is true. It may be that all sorts of other things will hold. But that's what I, I suppose I am concerned about. Not about the equitable distribution of resources, etc., but more about what actually happens in a multipolar international order. Very quickly, on the, on the, on the, on the other questions, quickly on uh, the Arab world in inequality, let me just deal with, well, I could deal with both of them if you like, but I want to be brief. I take the question of inequality extraordinarily seriously. It could, it could well be that the, 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 fundamental, the, the fundamental challenge of our age, an, an age where inequalities are growing, uh, not poverty, but inequalities are growing, both within societies and between societies, the question is what holds the whole thing together. You know, is there a society of states when you have such vast inequalities both between those states and within those states? And as we can see from every single bit of statistics coming out, both at international levels and within societies, inequality is growing. I use the term, if you remember, about the uber, the uber thinkers who only think in terms of centuries. Actually, the Financial Times has now come up with a beautiful new term to distinguish certain different groups within the middle class. There's the uber middle class, the financiers, the bankers, and everybody else who's doing extraordinarily well, and then there are the Klingons, (laughs) teachers, desperate. Actually, only just about holding it together and only about just holding their bills. If you then go down lower and further down, into the one billion who are outside of this, then you do have. And those could clearly be, as I think you're implying, those could clearly be 
the sources of new experience. So I'm not talking about a world without contradiction. I'm simply addressing the problem asked tonight about whether there's a new Asian centric John Livsian. Yeah, I'll be brief. Um, uh, one of the three comments talked about uh, we can't replicate the way we got this order because it was so unique. And even looking back in centuries, the, the 20th century was these two world wars, the, the fact that you got this kind of break point and this, uh, I mean, it's the violence really and the, the, the disarray that followed 1945 that allowed for all of this kind of order building. And then the Cold War actually had the ironic effect of, of, of boosting the ability of the United States to make commitments, uh, often for Cold War reasons, but had this uh, unintended effect or even intended effect uh, on support for multilateralism. But the break point was very unique. And so if we are now moving in an era where, thankfully, we aren't going to have great power wars, nuclear weapons, in some sense, have taken that way of, of, of reshuffling the deck and creating a new winner who would step forward and create order, that means that's another reason why China won't be able to repeat the American experience, uh, because nuclear weapons and, and the nature of the breakpoint. Um, so I, I think we have to uh, experiment, as I think to some extent we are, in, in coalition and concert kinds of leadership. I, I think that's that's an, it's it's pretty inevitable, and you get the G20 is, is an example of this. It, uh, Seventeen of the twenty are democracies. The only non-democracies are China, Russia, and uh, the Soviet uh, the, the Saudi Arabia. So you've got three that are in that sense outliers, but you've got all the others who are roughly speaking, ideologically in the same camp. Uh, uh, it doesn't work that, we that well because it could be the case that we are in the, an era where, where the ideological difference between states, large and small, east and west, north and south, is as narrow as it's ever been. But there really isn't a lot of leadership in the, in the sense of uh, uh, providing public goods. And so I, I guess the question is, can there be bargains, global bargains, that can, in effect, uh, in, allow for rising states that want more voice to couple that voice with uh, taking over certain responsibilities? And, and I think that's where a lot of the global discourse has to go. Then very finally, um, inequality, I do think, is the, the, the great... Uh, uh, the great uh, scourge, really, now of of, our, of the global system inside and between countries. How do you address those issues? Strangely, in the 1940s and 50s, mm. there was a a time when when uh, uh, the, the sort of original architects of order had a much more social democratic vision of order, and the New Deal was was recently in play, and uh, and uh, you, Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, and then you got away from all that. You had Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and neoliberalism, and it seems to me that that it, it behooves the advanced countries who have to go back to their roots of, of, of post-war order building and to remember how they were making bargains and creating social safety nets and social insurance and the welfare state was made consistent with openness, and that there be a kind of global conversation between the West and the non-West about about grievances and legacies and and something, some sense misperceptions. Uh, uh, China and the United States need to do this. Uh, the U.S. was not is not the not China's oppressor. Uh, but the, the lot of discourse in China makes it look like the U.S. is the, is the thing, that, thing that's in, in the way of China. 
it, the, the open door, the the it was Roosevelt who who urged Churchill to put uh, to make sure there was a Chinese seat in the in the UN Security Council, um, champion Chinese entrance into the WTO. I mean, there's a, there's a more non-hostile narrative, I think, uh, and uh, and and so I, I think the same would be needed for for for. Uh, Engaging India and, and Brazil and many many other countries that, that that we have so much baggage of of of, of grievance and animosity that that uh, part of the story of, of building new forms of collaboration and leadership is to to go through those that history and try to get over it. Okay. Right. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. Sorry. You might be able to catch the speakers on their way out if you have a desperate question. But I'd like to thank the speakers again for a fascinating discussion.